Well, church, nine, nine years ago, six years ago or so, a, a man died who had thrilled radio audiences in America for decades. He was a Tulsa-born man who talked about American exceptionalism, heroism, and the ability of people to make an impact. His name was Paul Harvey. And he would always close his stories with, and that is the rest of the story. For example, he told time after time stories about people that overcame incredible obstacles. He told the story of a man named Jerry Trailer, who at the age of 14 had been through 14 surgeries. He was a victim of cerebral palsy. And he stood in his doorway one day as a 14-year-old, realizing that his school was six blocks away, realizing he couldn't really take more than two steps on his crutches without exhaustion. But on that day, he said, I've, I've got to do it. And so he left early in the morning before his mom and dad were up and laboriously went to his school. And he made it. And his teachers and fellow students were astounded as this 14-year-old did that. Then Paul Harvey said, today, Jerry Trailer is 52 years of age. He has spoken to over one million Americans on how people with cerebral palsy can be productive citizens. Jerry Trailer has run in 36 marathons of 26.2 miles. One of them being Pikes Peak, which is 13.1 miles up and 13.1 miles down. Jerry Trailer is a man of great conviction. And now you know the rest of the story. Good day. Well, I thought about that as I was reading the gospel accounts and thinking about this resurrection Sunday is how we, we read the gospel accounts and we're on this side of the cross and this side of the empty tomb and this side of the outpoured Holy Spirit and this side on the closing of the canon with the apostolic testimony and we see the whole story. But if we could have been part of that early movement, we would have seen great confusion and bewilderment in the faces of the followers of Christ. For example, in Luke chapter 24, there are these two men, disciples of Christ, walking on a road to Emmaus. And Christ, the resurrected Lord, comes and he joins them. And their eyes are clouded and they cannot see that it is the Lord Christ. And so he has a, a conversation with them. And he said, why are you men so downcast? Why are you so disheartened? And one of them said, Cleopas, said, he said are, are you a visitor to, to Jerusalem? What? You don't know what's happened these last days in our city? And he said to them, what things? And they said, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all of this, it is now the third day since all these things happened. Moreover, some of our women amazed us. They were at the tomb early this morning, and when they, they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. They said, you know, to add insult to injury, his body's not there. Good grief. What else is going to happen? And it says, Jesus said to them, 
O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory and beginning with Moses and all the prophets? He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And they got the rest of the story. They didn't get it. Then in John chapter 2, on the week of his passion, Christ on the Monday of Holy Week goes into the temple. And the money changers had made the temple an economic place of profit. And so Christ took a rope and made it into a whip. And he overturned the tables and scattered the money of the money changers. And it says this, take these things away and do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remembered the scriptures had been written saying, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus said to them, destroy this temple and I will in three days raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken us 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days? And so stop. You know, in those days and really until fairly recently, the granddad would draw the architectural designs and the grandchild or great-grandchild will see the completion of a major edifice. It was a long project. They said, we've been doing this for 46 years. And you're going to raise it in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. In other words, they knew the rest of the story. Dr. D.A. Carson says in his wonderful book, Scandalous, The Message to the Cross, he says the point is that under the terms of the Old Covenant, the temple was the great meeting place between a holy God and sinful people. This was the place of sacrifice, the place of atonement, recovering for sin. But this side of the cross, where Jesus by his sacrifice pays for our sin, Jesus himself becomes the great meeting place between a holy God and his sinful people. Thus he became the temple, the meeting place between God and his people. It is in his death and his destruction and his resurrection three days later that Jesus meets our needs and reconciles us to God, becoming the temple, the supreme meeting place between God and sinners. So when Christ died on the cross, he cried out, it is finished. The curtain that keeps the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple was torn from top to bottom. The Holy of Holies was a place that the high priest went in there once a year with a bowl full of blood to make sacrifice for his sins or the sins of the people looking for the coming Messiah. Christ said, it's finished. The curtain is torn. Free access to God because of the cross of Jesus. See, we see the rest of the story. And it should change us. And then Mark chapter 8, the apostle Peter goes from the heights to the depths. Christ says, who do people say that I am? And they come up with this litany of names. And he says, but who do you men say that I am? And Peter steps forward and he says this, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You're the king. 
the Son of the living God. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. The word for rebuke is the same word that's used about Jesus casting out demons. It's a strong word. He says, never on my watch, never. It's not going to happen. You're the king. But Jesus, turning and seeing his disciples, all standing with Peter, rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. For you are not set in your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter didn't get it. He didn't get the rest of the story. In fact, John tells us on the night Jesus was betrayed, they came out to him, a mob of people, soldiers, chief priests, Pharisees, with lanterns and torches. They said, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And Christ stepped forward and said, I am he. And he said it with such glory and splendor that the men fell to the ground. It's an amazing statement. Fell to the ground. And Peter pulled a sword out of his tunic. Now, just stop. There are a group of people in the first century called the Zealots. They hated the Roman occupation. They thought Messiah would come on a horse with a conquering army and drive the Romans out of the Promised Land. And Peter probably was some way influenced or associated with them. He pulls out this sword, this hidden sword, and in a wild scenario, he lunges for the first man next to him, and he cuts off the guy's right ear. He's a a servant. He's a servant of the chief priest. Now, in those days, a servant was less than human. But in this melee and this confusion, this screaming and hollering, cursing, carrying on, Christ stops, and he touches the ear of this man, and he heals him. The guy's name is Malchus, Mr. No-Name, Mr. Nothing, Mr. Less Than Important, will forever be remembered throughout eternity because Jesus touched the ear of Malchus. Peter didn't get it. He was looking for a messianic kingdom of power and might and conquering political ethos. But later, Peter wrote this in his first epistle. He gets it. He says, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways of life, inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like gold and silver, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was foreknown for the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for your sake, who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. He said, You're not redeemed by silver and gold. You're redeemed by the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was foreknown before the foundation of the earth. He said this this plan of salvation was part of the Trinitarian Council before time began. In the fullness of time, Christ became a man, fulfilled the Old Testament sacrificial system by his death on the cross, by his resurrection from the dead. He got it, do we? That is the rest of the story. So I was thinking about this, and I thought, what what are some manifestations of of hope in this? Let me just mention two. 
because of the resurrection of Christ from the dead, we can walk through the valley of the shadow of death. There are many people sitting here today who have buried loved ones this, since last Easter. And death is horrible. Death is painful. Have you ever sat beside the bed of a loved one who had dementia or heart disease or the body was just wearing out? It is hard. And yet, because Christ died on the cross for our sins and rose victorious, we do not have a craven fear of death. Today, all over Christendom, this passage will be read is 1 Corinthians 15. Paul writes this, he says, if, verse 14, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, our preaching is vain, vain. And so is your faith. We are even found to be misrepresenting God. We're making false statements about God because we testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. And if Christ has been raised, has not been raised, your faith is futile, it's silly. Then those who have fallen asleep are still in their sins, and so are you. He says, but if Christ is raised from the dead and you've placed your hope in him, we can stand at the edge of the grave, at the deathbed of our loved ones, and we can say, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on the immortality, we can say, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Death is not the final word. There's a poem written by a guy named John Dunn who died in 1631 at the age of 59. It's not type of death be not proud. It goes like this, death be not proud. Though many have called you mighty and dreadful, for thou art not so. For, for those whom thou thinkest thou overthrow, die not, poor death, nor canst thou kill me. And then he closes with this. For, for one short sleep, and we will wake up in eternity, and death thou shalt die. Dunn, the Anglican poet, priest, preacher of the gospel, said, Death be not proud, though, though some have called thee mighty and dreadful, for thou art not so. Let me say this. Death is dreadful. It's dreadful. It's a tough valley. But death is not mighty, because the definition of mighty is that which has superior and ultimate power. Only Jesus has superior and ultimate power. And because Christ is risen from the dead, we say, death, you're not mighty. You can't kill me. For, for one short sleep, and we wake up in eternity, and death, thou shalt die. Because Christ is risen. We say, oh, grave, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? A second manifestation of this is that, is that you're able to handle the disappointments of life because this is a fallen world. We live in the almost, but the not yet. And so when you make adjustments in your life, even in making adjustments, you still deal with disappointments. There are people here today who would stand up and say, I have 
I am an alcoholic or I'm a drug addict and I've been sober for 35 years and four months and five days. Or 15 years and four months and three days, whatever. But, and they've made those adjustments. But even in the, the, the courage and the bravery of addressing that head on, you still deal with incredible disappointments in life. Life is filled with joys and sorrows, disappointments. And, 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 and really, the reality of the hope of heaven and the empty tomb says, you can live beyond the disappointments. I was uh, recently with a group of young guys. I meet some young guys, and they kind of keep me culturally relevant, sort of. They're always saying, to think, read this or think about this. I'm okay. So they're young guys. They're all under 30 and about seven, eight of them. And they're, they're really a joy. But, so I was with them a few weeks ago, and they said, did you see the Oscars this week? And I said, no. I didn't see the Oscars. I said, it started at 9 o'clock. I'm in bed at 10 after 9. I, mean, I didn't even watch the second half of the Wisconsin-Kentucky game last night. I was in bed, man. I, had to be, I will be up tomorrow night, though. Go Duke, you know, tomorrow night. So I, they said, they said at the, at, listen, at the Oscars, I said, what happened? Said, oh, man, Lady Gaga sang, and it was wonderful. And I said, Lady Gaga? I, know, I, I don't know much about Lady Gaga, except she's kind of an edgy person. And I've, I've heard people say in the past that no music, I don't know music, because it's a shame that she's so edgy and out there because she has a knockdown, gifted voice. I said, Lady Gaga? I said, yeah. So what she's singing, they said, a medley of songs from the sound of music. I said, stop. That's sacrilegious. <laughs> so Lady Gaga, Julie Andrews. Do you see the difference here? Okay. So I said, you guys have to realize, I saw the sound of music in, in the fifth grade. I've had a crush on Julie and on Maria for 50 years. And she, she's wonderful. I said, really, it was incredible. Just, just watch it. And I said, oh, okay. So I YouTubed it and watched it four times. It was wonderful. Lady Gaga just, I think her real name is Stefani Giramonti, but she just knocked it out of the park. And then the next week, there's an article in this magazine called The Atlantic. I really like this magazine. I usually disagree with it, but it's got great cultural pieces, and it's entitled The Power of a Gimmick-Free Lady Gaga. And it says that, that she came out, and she said it was incredible. She wowed everybody. And then it goes on and says that, that Lady Gaga has made a course direction in her pursuits, in her life. She's engaged. She's going to be married. It says that she has recently been betrayed by friends. She feels uh, burned out and burned by the entertainment industry. Her high-profile disputes with members of her creative team have been clearly advocated. And last year, Lady Gaga became friends with this guy. And they made an album together. Lady Gaga and Tony Bennett. Tony Bennett sang at George Washington's inaugural in 1797. <laughs> I mean, he's old. So you've got this... He's really only 88, but 88 and a 29-year-old, and she says, but Tony Bennett has shown me the beauty of our art the way it should be sung. And I, I, I read that, and I went, that's really cool. And I found myself praying for Lady Gaga, that God would open the eyes of this incredibly gifted woman to see that, that even mid-course adjustments, as wonderful as they can be, will ultimately disappoint you unless it's bathed in the reality of all that Christ is for us on the cross. We celebrate the common grace 
that causes people to make mid-course adjustments and to live responsibly and to live with dignity. But it's ultimately effective and efficacious and glorious at this bathe in the reality of Christ because he is ultimate truth. So there's a statement in the worship guide from a man named C.S. Lewis who, after several years of thought and friendship with guys like J.R.R. Tolkien and Charles Williams at the age of 32 became a believer, professor of medieval literature at Oxford. Okay. And I think this is the most insightful statements I've ever read. I've used it scores of times. Lewis says, as you look at the life of Christ, get rid of the patronizing nonsense that says he wasn't God, but he was a good man. He said he hasn't left us that option. He says he's either Lord, lunatic, or a liar. He says a man doesn't make the statements Jesus made if he's not God. You can't say he's a good man. He's on the same level as a man who says, hi, I'm a poached egg. It's just incongruous. For example, you think about this. Christ said very clearly to his followers, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Jews said, you can't say that. You make yourself equal with God. He says, I and the Father are one. He says, I forgive sins. And the Jews picked up rocks to stone him because they understood rightly only God can forgive sins, not some traveling teacher. He says to a woman consumed with grief over the death of her brother four days earlier, a woman named Martha, uh, as he talks with her in John 11, he says, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. If you don't understand the gospel, that's Orwellian doublespeak. What do you mean? I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yes, shall he live. He says, because there's an eternity, and you're with me. He says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. He says, I go to prepare a place for you in heaven. And if I go and prepare a place, I'll receive you unto myself. Now, a good man doesn't make these incredible statements. Only God does. Or maybe he's a liar. Maybe the disciples are liars. Maybe the apostles are liars. Maybe in the early morning of that third day, a group of disciples overpowered a group of Roman soldiers who were trained and battle-weary, and they rolled back the stone, and they took the body out and buried it somewhere in a hillside in Judea. And these men went to their death saying, He's risen. Death by horrible means, many of them. And, and maybe the apostles carried out the same charade, the eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ, saying, we've seen the resurrected Christ. Maybe the 500 men mentioned in 1 Corinthians 15 who saw the resurrected Christ all, with one accord, went to their graves either as martyrs or as old men, saying, he's risen. He's a liar. His men are liars. Or he's Lord. 
You know, the question I, I ask is, is do, do I really get it? Do I get the rest of the story? What will I do with the rest of the story? There's a man named Christopher Hitchens who died a few years ago of esophageal cancer. He was a brilliant, articulate, well-read, concise thinker who was an atheist. He wrote a book entitled, Your God is Not Great. In one of his last interviews, this is what Hitchens said. He said, I think it would be rather awful if it was true that God is alive. If there was a permanent, total, round-the-clock, divine supervision and invigilation of everything you did, you would never have a walking, waking or sleeping moment when you weren't being watched and controlled and supervised by some celestial entity from the moment of your conception to the moment of your death. It would be like living in North Korea. Stalin in the sky, big brother. And yet, the New Testament says that not a sparrow falls to the ground, Jesus says, without your heavenly Father's knowledge, and even the hairs of your head are numbered. The New Testament says that by the Holy Spirit we cry out with great joy, Abba, Father, because we see the glory of the cross. You see, the cross is an invitation to join in the gladness that exists in the worship of the living God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It is an invitation to joy and purpose and peace with God. We get it. We get it. God calls us to live that way. That is the rest of the story. On this Easter Sunday, I pray that God's richest blessings will be upon you. Let's stand and I'll pray. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you that really every Sunday is a statement of the resurrection. But we thank you that one day a year we say with great joy and anticipation and celebration, he's risen. Lord, help us to really get the rest of the story. Help us to live beyond the bewilderment of our culture or the shrug of the shoulder of our contemporaries, but help us to live with destiny and purpose and dignity because you're God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and because the cross is validated by the empty tomb. The claims of Christ, the Old Testament, validated by the empty tomb. Blessed be your name, Lord, in Jesus' name.